This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Survivors of the Columbine massacre 20 years ago didn't know at the time that so many other mass shootings would follow. Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, Aurora, and more each resulted in a new community of people coping with trauma. Over those years, some Columbine alumni joined forces to help the other survivors heal. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports. Two friends are shopping for groceries in Centennial, Colorado. We're just south of Denver. They wander the halls, picking up salad dressing and potatoes. The only thing I have left that I really need is tissue. Okay. And actually, remind me, I don't have that on here, but I need to. Okay. These two have been shopping together for years. And they're not roommates. They're survivors of mass shootings. Heather Martin of Columbine High School in 1999 and Sherry Lawson of Washington Navy Yard in 2013. And for both, being in a crowded grocery store can trigger memories of past trauma. Sherry says she first experienced it a month after the Navy Yard shooting. And I saw the brand of Greek yogurt I was going to be eating that morning for breakfast, and I just fell apart in the middle of the grocery store. And my friend was like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know, but I got to get out of here. For Heather, just being around a lot of people is problematic. Like lots of people and feeling like I was in people's way, like being slow and because I have to be very methodical. Shopping together lessens the anxiety of being in a crowded place that's enclosed, where the women can't see over the shelves when they shop. Heather and Sherry met each other through a support group for shooting survivors. And before they lived in the same city, they'd actually call each other while they shopped because they never knew when something would come up and they didn't want to be alone if it did. So far, I gotta be honest, this doesn't look different from like a normal trip to the grocery store. It's not, I'm sorry. The cart is filling up. I take out my camera. Sherry tells me about how her anxiety attacks tend to start. I always start my stomach with like, um, I feel nauseated. And You're not feeling that now, are you? A little bit. Really? Yeah, a little anxiety. So it doesn't, it doesn't always manifest. Should I go? No, 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 you're oh, okay. I start to get nervous. Sherry says, no, don't worry about it. But then she tells me this story. One of the first times I went back to Navy Yard um, to have to go to a meeting, and I was all by myself, and there were these reporters in front. I think it was like a week or so after. They were still set up. Um, And I saw them, and I went in, and I just threw up. I didn't realize that that was what it was, was a panic attack. And it's in that moment that I realize how easy it is for people who haven't lived through a mass shooting, and that's most of us, to dredge up past trauma without trying. Me, with my camera, the grocery store worker who shelved that container of yogurt. And then Sherry's anxiety ramps up on the spot, right in front of me. So what happens is my fingers will turn white, and you'll like see the blood leaving them. So like right now, it's just happening with this poop. And it's stress-related, because I'm not cold. It's clear. I'm the problem. So I put my camera away and turn off the recorder. Yeah. I, like, I can, I... Sherry and Heather have both gotten professional help. But they say it's the help they've given each other, like going to the grocery store together, that's made a really big difference in their lives. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode. This is Since Columbine, a podcast that explores how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. And in this fourth episode, how Columbine High School alumni, like Heather Martin, have built a family of survivors working together to relearn how to live.
First, Heather's Columbine story. She was two days away from her 18th birthday on April 20th, 1999. Heather was in a choir class when the shooting started. The students and teacher barricaded themselves in the room. There were 60 of them in all. The SWAT team didn't get to them for three hours. And by then, the shooting was over. Heather left the room and went home. The first feelings I really remember feeling are anger. And I was angry at everyone trying to intrude on something that I had been through. She graduated a few weeks later, and other than a quick trip to pick up her backpack, didn't go into the school again for years. She tried to move on quickly. You know, I was 18, so what do you do? You move out. Uh, I moved out just into an apartment, went to a local community college, and struggled a lot being in an environment where nobody knew what I had been through. College was hard. Everyone around her was talking about Columbine. Heather wanted to do anything but that. She told an English professor she couldn't write a paper on school violence. The response I got was just kind of like, well, that's the assignment. You have to do the paper. You're going to fail the class. Things devolved from there. Eventually, I developed an eating disorder. I ended up dropping out of college, dabbled in some drugs. It was nothing serious and thankfully nothing uh, addictive. But it was definitely a red flag for me that something that I was traumatized, that I wasn't right. As she tried to put her life back together, Heather avoided Columbine as much as possible. She'd leave town every April around the anniversary. But even that didn't work sometimes. You know, I remember, like, meeting some guy at a party and we're, like, talking. And then, you know, at, like, midnight or whatever, I just start crying. And he's like, oh, my God, this girl's crazy. I'm like, no, you don't understand. It's Columbine. As years passed, she'd have small pangs of regret when she missed something major, like the fifth anniversary. And then in 2009, the 10th anniversary, a big event was planned. Heather decided it was time. She had to go back to Columbine. And I was really scared. Um, I thought that I would be a wreck, and I was really anxious. Something unexpected happened at the school. Walking through the hallways with her younger sister and other friends, it was kind of fun. We kind of just took a bunch of like funny photos in front of like the attendance office. Like, oh, look, this is where the mom used to call in to ditch. She saw people she hadn't seen in a long time. It was less of a memorial and more of a reunion. And upstairs, Frank DeAngelis was getting ready to say a few words. He was the principal both when the shooting happened and at the 10th anniversary. It was more of a somber type of speech, talking about, you know, I'm so sorry you had to go through this and we'll never forget the kids that lost their lives. He got ready to walk downstairs. Hundreds of people were waiting for him. They're all down in the commons area, and I looked through the window. And he saw us all hugging each other. I see these kids laughing. I see them with their husbands. People are bringing their kids. I literally changed the whole speech I was going to give to them. I realized they were in a different place, and it was healing, and it was probably one of the most important moments we had. And just was like, you know what? This is a time of, of joy for us to be all back together. This visit, it was a turning point for Heather. Seeing all the people around her that day, it made her realize she wasn't alone. She didn't have to explain her past to anyone there. Heather went back to college and got her teaching license. Then, in the summer of 2012, another mass shooting happened in the Denver area. 315 and 
Century 14 for a shooting at Century Theaters. Breaking story out of Aurora, Colorado this morning. Twelve people were killed at that movie theater just a half an hour from Columbine High School. When that happened, we really wanted to reach out to that community so they knew that they weren't alone. Heather and other Columbine survivors started the Rebels Project. It's a nonprofit named after their high school mascot. She and other Columbine alumni didn't want the Aurora survivors to go through the same thing they did. And by that point, Heather felt like she was in a place where she could offer some help. More than a year later, in September 2013, Sherry Lawson was at work early on a Monday morning. She was about to turn 40 and was a contractor for the Department of Defense at the Washington Navy Yard. It's a massive campus that employs some 15,000 workers. A little after 8 o'clock, the shooting started. Sherry bolted out of there. We ended up scaling the 8 to 10-foot brick wall that surrounds the Navy Yard and running up to safety because the shooter was still actively shooting behind us. A dozen people were killed that day. And this morning, that all-too-familiar sight, the White House flag at half-staff for the victims. Sherry made it home safe. And then just a few days later, she had to go pick up her work laptop. She took the bus over. Her stop came and went. I couldn't get off the bus in front of the yard, and I had to stay on for a couple blocks and then just kind of had an emotional meltdown in the middle of the sidewalk. Sherry wasn't physically wounded, but emotionally and mentally, she was a wreck. She felt like her friends, relatives, and coworkers weren't giving her the support she needed. To their eyes, she looked fine. Because if I had a cast on or if I was on crutches, people would be, you know, a little gentler around me. But there's no way to do that when you have this injury that people can't see. At her lowest, Sherry contemplated suicide. You know, I wasn't sleeping. I didn't have a social life anymore. I, my relationships were falling apart. I was physically falling apart. And I was like, if this is the way it has to be, I don't want it. She had panic attacks nearly every day. She ended up in the hospital with an irregular heartbeat. She was feeling pressure from her employer at Navy Yard to keep working. Sherry couldn't handle it all. And so one night at 3 a.m., I did this frantic Google search um, looking for some type of support system because I really just didn't feel supported. She found the Rebels Project, Heather's group, and they started emailing each other. After six months, Sherry came to Colorado for a survivor's event. People from Newtown and Aurora were there. You didn't have to really talk about how you felt um, or what you've been through. I could just be in that room and be wherever I was. And it was very um, almost liberating for me. Sherry and Heather went to dinner together the next night. I remember we went to this Thai restaurant. And then afterwards, we sat in Heather's car and listened to Bruce Springsteen for like three hours and just talked. Heather says one album was particularly meaningful, The Rising. It came out after 9-11 and is full of stories of trauma and grief and recovery. They have a favorite song. Uh, My City of Ruins. I have a hard time listening to it without choking up. There's a blood red circle You know, it starts so kind of low and somber. Yeah, and you feel that emotion. Um, It's, you know, this kind of sound of a choir behind him. I mean, I was in choir. I loved music. I loved to sing. And just that, that energy that comes from that and the words, like combined with the rising up. It is usually the end of that song that gets me... the shooting hearing that rise up was motivating to me but also um, scary and emotional 
And it reminds me, you've been through this thing, but life still goes on and you can rise up. It's not going to be the same, but good things can still happen. And definitely positive things have happened since. And so Sherry made this decision to go where she felt like she had support, to Colorado. You couldn't have paid me a million dollars 10 years ago to convince me that I'd ever move here. This is the backwater, right? (laughs) But she got over that. She likes that the people here are more laid back than out east. Um, And I legitimately have a family here. Like, I basically have made myself a member of Heather's family. And (laughs) see our family Christmas photo. (laughs) These days, Heather and Sherry spend time traveling across the country together to communities affected by shootings. They went places we've all heard about, like Orlando and Parkland, and places you probably haven't, like Cedarville Rancheria, a native community in remote northern California. We thought we were going to go out there and do like a presentation, like Heather had her PowerPoint together and everything, and we get there and we ditch the PowerPoint and basically just have a support group meeting. Because what they need, Sherry says, is someone who understands what they're feeling. We experienced it in Florida when we met with one of the first responders from the Pulse shooting. And you could just tell that he was able to just tell us things that he hadn't been able to share with other people. Mental health care is hugely important for shooting survivors. After the Parkland, Florida shooting in 2018, students had access to counselors and therapy dogs. But two student survivors died by suicide just last month. The mother of one of the students says that her daughter struggled with survivor's guilt, but that she'd never asked for help. And it's those kinds of people that Heather is trying to reach. Just having these conversations is an emotional and draining task. Heather says she has to take breaks and focus on self-care, but she says it's something not many other people can do. If I can provide that system of support earlier in the recovery, just to make that process easier. Um, It's just not anything that I had, and I want to offer it to others. She gets something out of it, too. It forces her to think about her own recovery. And that's top of mind right now, as Heather and Sherry plan events for the Columbine anniversary. I'm trekking through. I'm, you know, practicing a lot of self-care on my end, but this one's really heavy, Because this one is a big round number, 20 years. Sherry says it's her job to step in and help carry the load. She knows that she'll need help herself in the fall when her own anniversary comes around. And Heather says she'll be there, ready to give it. CPR's Nathaniel Minor with Since Columbine. It's a radio series and podcast about how the shootings 20 years ago changed America. When we come back, big changes in store for the oil and gas industry here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. This year, Democrats are giving local communities more power over the oil and gas industry. So for our latest episode, we look back at the long fight leading up to this. I had no idea of the size or the power of the oil and gas lobbies. I really didn't care. Colorado's first drilling ban and how it ended up limiting the power of other communities. Again, that's Purplish. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The oil and gas industry here is braced for sweeping regulatory changes. Governor Polis is set to sign one of the most hotly contested bills from the new democratically controlled legislature. 
Jeff Robbins will largely be responsible for implementing all the change. He's the new head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. So the COGCC remained neutral on this bill, Senate Bill 181, as it does on legislation in general. Uh, The measure's goal is to elevate health and safety. How will your commission, which is so central to permitting and oversight, how will it most change? Well, there are a few things as part of the bill that are going to create change at the commission. Um, First off and foremost, the uh, makeup of the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission itself has changed uh, upon the effective date of the bill. Um, The commission will change from a commission that had three industry members to a commission that has one industry representative. There will be a representative from public health, a representative from the environment, a representative representing wildlife protection, uh, a soils and reclamation representative, um, or someone that has technical experience relevant to the issues of the commission, and then a representative of local government, and then an ag and mineral owner representative, as well as our directors of CDPHE and DNR. So that's a pretty significant change just to get started. Um, We're working hard with the administration to get that new commission up and going so that we can hold our delayed April hearing sometime in early May. And do you think that those are important changes in terms of reflecting the stakeholders around oil and gas? You mentioned soils, you mentioned public health, you mentioned natural resources. Well, the direction from the Colorado legislature is that the Oil and Gas Commission is no longer going to foster oil and gas development, but instead it will regulate oil and gas development in a manner that is protective of public health, safety, welfare, and the environment. And I think having this new nine-member commission with the various prisms they're bringing to the decisions of the commission is important. In many ways, Governor Polis's signature will be the starting line, not a finish line. I mean, lots of rules have to be drawn up. The legislature gets all the glory or whatever the opposite of glory is for their work. You have the hard work that can take months, can take up to a year of drawing up specific regulations for things like flow lines and methane. Let's talk flow lines. An improperly abandoned one in Firestone was connected to a deadly home explosion. What changes are needed there? Well, the legislature has given us direction that we should um, take a look at the flow line rulemaking that was done last year and um, make potentially some changes to that. In particular, there was the legislative direction that the information relevant to flow lines should be made public so that people are aware of where flow lines are located. And so that will certainly be one of the initial rulemakings that we are delegated to undertake. Um, There are a number of others that we will undertake in this first year of, you're right, uh, you know, a lot of rolling up the sleeves and a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. How long do you think that might take? I anticipate that. So the first rulemaking, uh, rulemakings, plural, um, involves the sort of health, safety, welfare new mandate that we've received from the Colorado legislature. We have to take a look at our rules through the prism of regulating in a manner that protects health, safety, and welfare, as opposed to the previous mandate of fostering development. Um, We have to look at alternative locations and cumulative impacts. And we also have to look at uh, redefining the local government, state government relationship. Because Are we talking a month here? Are we talking six months, a year? I think we're probably talking more like uh, a year to get that first rulemaking done. All right. The industry says rulemaking is going to slow down their pace of work. 
uh, and that leads to their economic fears. Here is David Sappington. He's a resident of Weld County who used to work for the oil industry. Too much regulation is never a good thing. You know, corporate America needs to be regulated, but they don't need to be overregulated. Will this increase the cost of oil and gas doing business in Colorado? I don't necessarily think so. Um, We are also taking some efforts immediately to address the concern of the backlog and how we can uh, make the commission more productive in terms of looking at oil and gas wells. We're going to let me just say that the backlog that you refer to there is a backlog in about 6,000 drilling permits, I think more than that. It's about 6,000. We are continuing to process oil and gas locations as well as well sites. Uh, at the commission, and then at the same time, we'll be working hard to bring these new rules into being. Uh, but there will be some additional costs at the front end for oil and gas, no? The uh, legislation does provide to the Oil and Gas Commission that it can now no longer uh, – currently, it doesn't charge any fees for oil and gas wells, yeah. and there's a $200 cap on the fee, and that cap has been removed. Although, frankly, we're probably going to take up the fees associated with oil and gas after the initial oil and gas uh, environmental health, safety, welfare rules. Uh, But there's also the potential for savings here. Um, If, for instance, rules on methane capture, uh, which is their product, um, if those are tightened, I suppose. That's right. And that's going to be the purview of the Air Quality Control Commission, who will be doing a rulemaking uh, on that front here, you know, over the next few months. With that 6,000 permit backlog, how many do you expect to get through as you're also making all these rules for the next year? Well, I think it's going to be uh, somewhat business as usual. We've uh, been continuing to uh, move through the backlog. We've approved um, in any number of well locations and wells since January. And when I took uh, took this position, um, we'll continue to do that while at the same time working hard to get the new rules in place so that we're protective of the environment and undertaking our new mission. Okay, so a bit of walking and chewing gum, you're saying, for the next year. So I want to turn to the local control aspect of this bill. It'll allow communities to minimize the adverse effects of drilling, quote, to the extent necessary and reasonable to protect public health and safety. Some environmentalists have raised concerns about that. Here's Christian Van Woudenberg. He's an elected town trustee in Erie. So lawyers will decide what that means. And the problem is that these oil and gas companies have access to resources, magnitudes of orders beyond a town council like Erie, for example. And he means by resources that they have deep pockets to spend on lawyers. Do you think this issue of local control is just going to get decided in the courts? Uh, I I hope not. I think that local governments, and I've been a was a local government lawyer before taking this position. That's um, right. I think that local governments understand how to regulate in a necessary and reasonable manner. I think that's what they've generally done with regard to most land use matters over the course of the years. And yet, those and, have also gone to court. At times, those have gone to court, but I think that uh, local governments are going to be well-equipped to provide the new level of protection um, and regulation of oil and gas uh, under those constraints, and I think they'll do a good job of that, as I am hopeful that uh, – think that our commission will do the same thing. And I suppose we may see some communities enact tougher regulations and some that feel more comfortable with oil and gas uh, not doing so. I think that's right. I think you're going to see the vast majority of local governments continue to defer to the state oil and gas commission to be the regulator of oil and gas. And then there will be other communities that will be more involved in regulating at the local level.
Uh, Let's talk a bit about your mission as the new director of the COGCC. Some activists have criticized the commission for not scrutinizing permits enough, um, particularly those close to homes. Do you think that criticism has been justified? I think that uh, I'm, you know, I'm I'm looking forward. Uh, with regard to the new legislative mandate that we have at the commission. I can tell you that my staff is excited to implement that uh, new legislative mandate. And I think we're well equipped to do a good job of ensuring the development of our natural resources while also protecting our communities and the environment. Let's talk about that uh, idea of ensuring the responsible development. Uh, You have folks in oil and gas rich parts of this state who are in a near panic about these rules and who see economic doom on the horizon. Uh, what would you tell them right now? Well, I have been telling them because I've been meeting with uh, oil and gas industry as well as stakeholders from all sides. And I'm telling them that, uh, you know, we are planning on implementing this new regulatory framework. Um, and at the same time, we're going to try to keep business as usual and moving forward with responsible uh, development of the natural resources. But that's in a manner that uh, under that looks through the prism of 181 that is protective of health, safety, welfare, and the environment. Is that a contradiction to say business as usual after this law is signed? I don't, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, the legislature has provided to the uh, commission our duty is no longer fostering but regulating. And, and that's what we the commission has been doing for any number of years. And we're just going to do it in a manner that elevates the protection of health, safety, welfare, and the environment. Jeff, thanks for spending time with us. Thank you. Jeff Robbins is the new head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. He spoke to us about Senate Bill 181. It's a massive oil and gas bill aimed at reforming the industry across the state. Colorado is a long way from the ocean, and finding fresh seafood here used to be a little fishy. But things are changing thanks to technology and consumers who want to eat more sustainably. That's the focus of Disruptors today, our series about entrepreneurship in the state. We recently visited Beast and Bottle in Denver during dinner prep. Chef Paul Riley explained how diners are changing the way they eat. More and more, our guests are craving to know exactly where their food is coming from. Traceability and responsibly harvested fish are always number one. Chef Riley buys his fish from a seafood company that just located its U.S. headquarters a thousand miles from the sea in Denver. Niceland Seafood buys fish off the boats in Iceland, puts a barcode on it, and flies it to Colorado. Again, Chef Riley. Having the captain's name and the fishing vessel's name and exactly when it arrived in Denver is just another weapon in our arsenal to show off how well we source our food. With me in studio now is Megan Russell. She's head of U.S. strategy for Niceland in Denver. Welcome to the program. Thank you. When I think of buying fresh fish... I still have this kind of old-timey view of a market in Seattle or New York. Maybe it's three in the morning. The boats have just come in. Is that how fish is still sold, by and large? Is, but not by and large. Okay. Um, I think that the seafood industry has definitely changed in the sense that logistics 
um, have improved, of course, and we have direct airspace that takes us from Iceland or Mexico directly into major metropolitan cities in the United States. We have airspace. You mean those flights that are coming in bringing uh, seafood to the hinterlands? Correct, yes. Okay. Your company is trying to bring the seafood industry more into the information age, so certainly transportation has revolutionized this. But uh, essentially, you put a barcode on the fish, and what kind of information are you tracking with that barcode? So we put a, a static QR code on the boxes in Iceland, and then we actually provide retailers and restaurants with um, static unique QR codes for them as well. So as a consumer, when you go into the restaurant or the retailer, you can simply open your iPhone and be able to trace your fish from from catch to plate. Okay, so it's not just the chefs doing this. It's also the customers at their restaurants who can do this. Exactly. It's super simple. And what are you learning when you scan that? And why is it benefiting you? <laughs> so um, you're actually learning about the captain who caught your fish, the vessel the fish was captured on or caught on, um, the airplane that it brought it to the United States, and the company that brought the fish to the restaurant or the retailer. Why does it matter if I know this? I think that consumers and chefs alike are more interested in their food source uh, now more than ever. And people want to make sure that they're making, uh, you know, having a responsible decision in what they're consuming. And What does that mean, responsible decision? Because I think of a fish being, uh, you know, flown to me. That mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily feel all that responsible if you're concerned about, you know, carbon or something like that. What is the responsibility baked in here? Okay, so there's a, a couple levels of the responsibility that we have it nice and seafood. So all of our uh, wild fish is MSC certified. What does that mean? Um, so Marine Stewardship Council certified. So essentially um, what that means is that um, all of the fish that's captured in or caught in Iceland, rather, um, is caught with healthy fishing practices. And Iceland is absolutely what has one of the healthiest fish stocks in the world right now. So you're not depleting resources and you have some confidence in that. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else that this could tell me about the sustainability of what I'm doing? The sustainability of what you're doing? I think we as consumers have a responsibility you know, when um, we go out to eat or we're buying something in a grocery store because we, you know, we want to make the place, the world a better place. And I wonder if this can come off as a bit precious to some, even elitist, knowing your fisherman's name. I think of this scene, Megan, from Portlandia, the show that pokes fun at hipsters. Yeah. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, the chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm going to ask you just one more time. And it's local? It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board organic. Hazelnuts, these are local. How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Okay, I understand that your seafood is a bit more expensive as a result of all that you're tracking. How much yes. more expensive? Not much more. Not much more at all. Um, I, when you're in a in a retail setting, our fish is anywhere from 9 to $16 per pound, which is really reasonable for the at-home cook. Now, what's interesting here is that fraud is rampant in the seafood industry. Uh, nearly a third of all fish sold in the U.S. is not what it claims to be. 
Mm. Uh, I wonder if that's part of the picture here and why there has been so much fraud. Absolutely. Niceland wants to focus on minimizing and hopefully one day getting rid of seafood fraud in the sense that we are making sure that every step of the way from catch to plate that there's full transparency. Why do you think there has been so much fraud? And what form does the fraud take? In other words, someone tells me it's a certain cut of fish, but it's not. So I think a lot of it has to do with actually consumers. Consumers are only comfortable eating certain species, right? You know, we're all very comfortable with salmon and shrimp and mahi and tuna. Yeah. Um, and so I think that a lot of times fish is mislabeled um, because the chefs or the retailers, for instance, may want to you know make sure that they're capturing those sales. And so I think that consumers actually need to be more open to eating different species. And also, a lot of species have different names that they can be called. So some names are recognized by the FDA and some are not. Some are just, you know, you can call um, Pacific Yellowtail also Hiramasa. Um, however, Hiramasa has a cousin named Hamachi. Um, and so depending on labeling and depending on where that fish was caught has a lot to do with what's technically legal. Interesting. So there's a lot of play there if you want to be fraudulent, but there's also a lot to learn for the consumer about what's on their dinner plate. I'm just picturing people with their phones out. <laughs> well, we already have our table. phone out, right? We have our phone out. We're taking pictures of it. Why not learn something about it? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our series, Disruptors, about uh, entrepreneurship in Colorado, we're talking to the folks at Niceland Seafood. Uh, they brought their U.S. headquarters to Denver, uh, partially because there are direct flights from Iceland. I just want to note that Wow Airlines is an Icelandic carrier that served other markets, not Denver, and it just went belly up. I wonder if you're affected by that in other markets. It's definitely um, <laughs> something that we've been talking about a lot at work, um, you know, because we, well, of course, want to capitalize on all different air air freight options that we have into the United States and other markets, for instance, in Europe. Um, but we, we feel really confident with our partnership with Iceland Air. Okay. But the, we, were you relying on WOW to some extent in markets? Not at the moment. Okay. Um, we were looking at them as an option, but knew that the, uh, they may not actually survive. Okay. You saw the writing on the wall there. Mm -hmm. I guess the, the point is you want there to be more focus on sustainability. But is this inherently unsustainable given the fact that what we're relying on is airplanes to deliver our food. How do you reconcile that at Niceland? Okay. Um, so I think the first thing that we've done is we are now using 100% recyclable boxes. So we're getting away from styrofoam, which is huge because so much seafood is transported in styrofoam. To keep it cold. Correct. Exactly. But can you keep it cold if you're getting rid of styrofoam? We can. Okay. We can. Absolutely. Um, in addition to that, you know, I, I feel as though that mindfulness in our practices, mindfulness in our relationships everywhere across the board from the fishermen to the consumer. And of course, the way that the fish is caught and, and packaged says a lot. And the, the short flight of six hours from Iceland to Denver, um, I think is something that uh, is manageable. And that you might have to wrestle with yourself as a consumer, frankly. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess so. Okay. Uh, this trend of wanting to know more about where food comes from is not limited to seafood. So before we go, I'd like to broaden the discussion. Do you expect to see this kind of business model adopted by, I don't know, the beef industry, for example? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, beef and poultry have been branding more so than seafood has ever. Uh-huh. And in seafood, actually, um, that's now becoming more of a trend. It started generally with aquaculture. Um, and educating consumers that aquaculture can actually be a very good thing. Oh, the sort of farm-raised exactly. idea of yeah. seafood. Exactly. Um, so <clears throat> I think that what we're going to start to see in seafood is there is going to be more brand awareness so that consumers can make choices based on what they feel good about and also be able to identify a quality that they want to always know that they're going to get. Down to the actual fishermen or woman. <laughs> Megan, this has been fascinating. Thanks for sharing this with us. Thank you for having me. Megan Russell is Director of Sales and Strategy for Niceland Seafood, which sells fish caught in Iceland from its U.S. headquarters now in Denver. We spoke as part of Disruptors, our coverage of new ideas in business. I got a fish in my Migration story now of a Chicano family that left rural southwest Colorado for Denver nearly a century ago. The first member made the 200-mile journey on foot and by hitchhiking. She was Kali Fajardo Einstein's great-grand-aunt. And now these two places, southwest Colorado and Denver, are the backdrops for Fajardo Einstein's debut book, a collection of unflinching short stories called Sabrina and Corina. They deal with gentrification, inequality, and violence, but also love and family. And welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Each of these fictional stories centers around a different family. Why don't you start by telling us about your family and its roots? Sure, I'd love to. So my family's been in Colorado for more generations than I can count and more generations than we can trace because the records just simply disappear at a certain point. But in the 1920s and 30s, my family members migrated north from southern Colorado, and they settled in Denver because of their hopes for owning property, for working, for having better life experiences. That was just less possible in southern Colorado? Yeah, there wasn't as much going on, but also... um, they came from a family of eight children, and their father had abandoned them. And so the women had to come up to make their own way in Denver. How does this inform your sense of Denver today? Like, I wonder how often you think about those roots as you move about the city. Every day, every day of my life, I think about the fact that my great-grandmother's house is, you know, it's in five points. I walk by it. Sometimes I see it. I have a great-great-auntie whose home was on the west side, and sometimes I go down Galapago Street and I look at that house, too. And I think about how the city's changed so much, but underneath those layers of change, my family has just always been here. This is our heartbeat. This is where we're from. Have you ever contemplated leaving, or have you ever left? For any- I Yes, I've left quite a bit. Um, I've, I've sort of come back. I'm like a prodigal daughter of sorts. Okay. Um, I, I, so after I graduated from Metropolitan State University of Denver, I left for San Diego for one year and I experienced extreme homesickness. And I, I came back and I went to Wyoming and then I was in South Carolina and Key West, Florida and Durango, Colorado. I've, I've lived all over. But when my writing really started to take off for me, it's when I came back home to Denver and I really just started grinding it out and writing these books. I hear so often the advice to writers write about what you know. So I wonder if coming back to the place that you know probably better than anyone or else, if that had some effect on your writing. 
I think in some ways going away helped strengthen my worldview about the place that I had come from. Yeah. It helped me see some of the ugly side of Denver that I wasn't aware of before. Um, we have a legacy of segregation. We have we have a city that is very divided in some ways. And it wasn't until I had lived in the South that I started to notice that in my own place. So I think coming back... I was able to write about Denver from a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, the history of redlining in Denver, where people and who those people were who could buy property. Yeah, definitely. For instance. Uh, the first story in your collection, uh, Kali, the, the collection is called Sabrina and Karina. We're talking about these short stories. The first is called Sugar Babies. It's set in southern Colorado. It's about parenthood. There's also a real innocence to it. Uh, tell us what a sugar baby is and why you started the book this way. Sure. So a lot of my work is based on my own life, and I take a lot of composite characters and things that I've experienced, and I sort of put them together into a narrative plot. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was forced to raise a bag of sugar as if it were a real baby. And I thought about that for a long time because it was just so ridiculous. Like, it couldn't <laughs> prepare me for raising a real life. And when I was in graduate school at the University of Wyoming, I went to an art talk one day, and there was a man there, and he was just talking about an archaeological dig site in his small town. And suddenly, I had this whole image of a town in southern Colorado, and I, I ran home to my apartment, and I started furiously writing, and there was this central image of the sugar baby and the sugar baby showed up and because of that I was able to create this whole plot around Sierra Cordova and her partner Robbie Martinez and they have to raise this little sugar baby as their whole town has been uplifted by this archaeological dig site from a Native American burial ground at the edge of town. Yeah, it strikes me that there were layers of generations in this story. So the sugar baby represents the innocence maybe of a new generation. Uh, meanwhile, you have ancestors essentially being dug out of the ground. Yeah, and I think there's another there's another generational uh, link to these stories, too, is that Sierra has been abandoned by her own mother. And so she's trying to figure out how to become a mother with this inanimate object. But at the same time, she's thinking about the fact that her ancestors are beneath her feet and they're beneath Robbie's feet. And there's great grandparents and grandparents all around them just trying to tell them how to be good people and how to raise this child that's not even real. Did you have a good relationship with your mom? I had a, a good relationship with my mom and also a complicated relationship with my own mother. Um, she's everywhere in this book. You know, she's all over these stories. My mother is an incredible woman. And I think because of our mirrored interest in our history and our heritage, sometimes we butted heads. Um, but now, later in life, I can see that I everything I have is because of my mother. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And my guest is the Colorado author, Kali Fajardo-Anstein, whose new collection of short stories is called Sabrina and Karina. And I am just haunted by the titular story. Uh, a warning to listeners, it contains some violence that I'm going to explain. Sabrina and Karina are cousins who grew up together in North Denver, then drifted apart. Karina, if I have this right, is a makeup artist at Macy's, and she gets a call at work one day. Sabrina has been strangled to death, and it will be Karina's job to hide the strangulation marks on her body with makeup. It made me wonder if you're ever haunted by your own work, because this story has not left me since I read it, Kali. 
That's a really interesting question and a question I haven't been asked before. And yeah, the answer is yes, I am. Sometimes when I write these stories that have to face violence head on because violence is something that's impacted women in my community, um, I can't get their voices out of my mind. I'll go and I'll try to take a shower and they're still talking to me and they still want me to tell their stories. So yeah, I am haunted by them. And, you know, just to do the research for Sabrina and Karina, I had to do a lot of I had to look up morgues. I had to look up bodies. I had to do a lot of things that I was very uncomfortable with, but I wanted to tell this story with authenticity and truth, and I wanted to honor these characters, especially women who are murdered and their cases go unsolved. And these are direct experiences you've had with people in your community. These stories grow out of the violence you've seen in in parts of Denver. Yeah, and, you know, I did... You know, violence that I've seen in my own life and my extended family, people I grew up with. Um, but also, I started doing historical research of cold cases of murdered women in Denver. And I was specifically looking for Chicanas. And so I was looking at any woman who had a Hispanic surname. And I was just appalled at what I was finding. Uh, there was there was one case in particular of a, a woman who came from Iowa and she wanted to be an actress in the 1950s. And I found, I was reading that, you know, they never found her body, but they found a black dog who had her hand in its mouth. You know, things like that really haunt me. And I want Goodness. to honor these women and make sure that their lives are not forgotten. A lot of your protagonists have foils. Um, another character who acts as a contrast. How are Sabrina and Corina, these two cousins, how are they different yeah, I think that's interesting because some people ask me, which, which one are you more like? Are you more Sabrina? Or are you more Karina? And I, I, you know, I never have an answer to that because to me, they both represent two sides of the same coin. It's sort of like the dark double. There's this twinning within them. So Sabrina is, she's very impulsive. She's wild. She's an alcoholic that goes out and she has this fun, vivid life. And Karina is very closed off and she she's working at Macy's and she's covering other women up with makeup all the time, which is in a way she's covering up her own personality because she's huh. trying to hide who she truly is. And that thread of duality runs throughout the entire collection of short stories. Several stories poke fun at the term Highlands yeah. to, <laughs> to describe a Denver neighborhood on the north side of town. Uh, help us understand why Highlands is a loaded term for folks in the city. Some folks. I, you know, it's just so funny because I grew up, uh, like I was at 35th and Newton for a while and I was growing up and then I worked at Westside Books at 32nd and Lowell for a long time. And it was just, we never called it the Highlands. That was something that came about later. We called it the North Side. And I think, you know, these terms, when you have these real estate developers, they come in and they change the name of a place. And what ends up happening when you change the name of the place, you sort of are gutting the identity of the people who are already there and have been calling it something for a very long time. Um, yeah, so it's it's I have jokes in here because it's gentrification is a very sad, serious topic. But also sometimes it's just hilarious. Some of the things that happen. <laughs> we mentioned this migration of your family from southern Colorado to Denver. Um, I understand you're working on a novel inspired by the first member of your family to relocate. Uh, this is your great grand aunt, who I understand was a real character. 
Yeah, yeah. So the first woman in my family to leave in my novel, her name is Maria Josie, uh, but she had gotten pregnant. She was not married. And basically the family said, we don't, you know, we don't want you around anymore. And so she said, okay, I'm going to go to Denver where there's work and I can, I can make my own way with my baby. And she started walking in the 1920s and she hitchhiked along the way. You know, I'm sure the journey took days and days. Um, but when she got to Denver, she was fully able to express her true sexuality. She was a lesbian. She joined Dykes on Bikes later on. Oh. Um, she worked as a car mechanic. She she carried trash. I mean, she did all these things that women were not supposed to be doing and were told they could not do. And she became the matriarch of the family and really took care of all the other siblings that came up in her wake. Thanks for sharing your family stories and your short stories with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to share them. Kali Fajardo-Anstein is a Denver author. Her debut book is a collection of short stories titled Sabrina and Karina. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.